Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we covered what happened from the end of the last Ice Age through the Stone, Bronze, and Iron Ages. Admittedly, not in great detail, that's true, but at least that kept the amount of loose speculation down to a minimum, since we don't know all that much about life in Scandinavia prior to the 9th century anyway. In today's episode, the Vikings will start making the rounds, introducing themselves to the other peoples of Europe. We'll start today with the British Isles, and then in the coming episodes, we'll work our way eastward over the continent from Francia to Russia, and eventually all the way to Constantinople, before we turn back to Scandinavia again. So, without any further ado, let's get to it. Episode 2. Here come the Vikings. As you're probably all well aware, history isn't an exact science, and when dividing the past into convenient chunks called ages, eras, or epochs, historians will typically say that this or that age started sometime in this or that century. But not so in the case of the Viking Age. Here, we have an exact date. The Viking Age officially got going on the 8th of June in the year 793. That's because this was the day the Vikings showed up and raided the ancient monastery at Lindisfarne, situated on a small tidal island off the coast of Northumbria in what's today northeastern England. The shock of the violent and unexpected attack was so great that it set off a whole new age. But of course, history isn't quite as neat as all that, not even in this case. The attack on Lindisfarne wasn't, strictly speaking, the first time Scandinavian Vikings had appeared off the shores of the British Isles with violent intentions. Yet again, we're the victims of chronological convention. But instead of reinventing the wheel, we're just going to roll with it. Even though I'm not going to make up a new chronology for the Viking Age, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention the earlier incident. So here we go. The first known account of a Viking raid taking place in Anglo-Saxon England comes from the year 787. Then, three ships of Northmen landed on the southern coast of Wessex. The local bailiff assumed that these foreigners were merchant and directed them to a nearby town where international trade was allowed and taxes could be properly collected. But the Northmen proceeded to kill the bailiff and his men instead. According to one chronicle, Ethelward, the Vikings killed the bailiff because they didn't like his tone. If so, that must have been one mighty annoying tone, considering that Viking raids continued for generations to come. There might even have been additional raids carried out by Scandinavians at the time, because already in the year 792, the year before the sacking of Lindisfarne, King Offa of Mercia ordered preparations to be made in order to defend Kent against raids. But back to Lindisfarne. The island was, and still is to this day, only reachable during low tide by crossing an estuary that's covered by sea during high tide. Such semi-isolated places were invested with mystery and magic long before the Christians arrived in the British Isles, and when Christianity took root, churches and monasteries were often built on these sites. The monastery of Lindisfarne was founded by an Irish monk called Aidan, later upgraded to Saint Aidan, who had been sent from another rich and famous monastery called Iona, off the west coast of Scotland to Northumbria sometime in the mid-7th century. Aidan remained at Lindisfarne until his death in the year 651. He was later buried on the premises. Lindisfarne became the base for Christian evangelism in Northumbria and Mercia. Northumbria's patron saint, Saint Cuthbert, 
was a monk and later abbot of this monastery. He ended up his career as Bishop of Lindisfarne and a biography of Cuthbert, written at Lindisfarne, is one of the oldest pieces of English historical writing we know of. Lindisfarne was important, rich and teeming with life and activity. It was the seat of a bishop and it held the remains of St. Aidan and Cuthbert. This made it an important site of pilgrimage and pilgrims brought with them prestige and not least money, making Lindisfarne rich. The monastery was also famous for its scriptorium, where monks would copy holy books. At some point in the early 8th century, the famous illuminated manuscript known as the Lindisfarne Gospels was made by a local monk. What makes this book so famous is the illustrations, done in a style combining Celtic, Germanic and Roman elements. The Lindisfarne Gospels have survived to this day and is housed in the British Library in London. So, the point is that it wasn't just some random run-of-the-mill monastery that was sacked on that June day in 793. It was a place people had heard of, a place that was an important centre of pilgrimage and learning for Christians both in the British Isles and on the continent. On that beautiful day in June 793, the monks were at work gathering up the hay when they noticed three foreign-looking ships approaching over the North Sea. They were curious and left their work to go down to the shore to greet the newcomers. To their surprise, an armed horde swarmed off the ships and demanded loot. The monks protested, naturally but maybe a little recklessly, and the Vikings started to kill and plunder. Most monks were killed, either slain or drowned in the sea. Some were taken as slaves and only a few managed to escape. The monastery itself was plundered and set on fire. The Vikings set out to sea again swiftly before anyone in Northumbria had a chance to act. This was a devastating blow against the community at Lindisfarne, but it wasn't the end of the monastery. A few years later, it had actually recuperated enough that the Vikings thought it worth their while to attack again. Only in the year 875, after enduring eight decades of repeated Viking raids, the monks abandoned Lindisfarne, carrying off the relics of St. Aidan and Cuthbert with them. Anyway, once the Vikings had set off to sea again that day in June 793, the surviving monks proceeded to spread the shocking news to the rest of Northumbria and Europe. And just like that, the Viking Age had begun. The fact that Lindisfarne was famous helped making the raid infamous. Also, the brazen attack on a Christian holy place by barbarian heathens helped framing this as a religious conflict between good and evil, light and dark, Christianity and paganism. Alcuin, a Northumbrian scholar who was at Charlemagne's court at the time, wrote, Never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. The heathens poured out the blood of saints around the altar and trampled on the bodies of saints in the temple of God like dung in the streets. To Christians, the fact that it was such a prominent holy place that had been desecrated made the brutal attack especially shocking. But ironically, the Vikings most likely didn't care that Lindisfarne was a religious site, that the men that they had killed or enslaved were men of God, or that the vessels made of precious metal that they had stolen had once held sacred relics. In other words, they weren't out to humiliate Christians or Christianity per se. They didn't get off on committing blasphemous acts. They just wanted rich booty and easy spoils, and from that perspective, the poorly defended and rich monastery was an excellent target. After the fact, there was a fair share of I told you so's. One of them penned the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, 
and recorded that the locals had been warned, in a manner, of the imminent attack. In this year, fierce foreboding omens came over the land of the Northumbrians, and the wretched people shook. There were excessive whirlwinds, lighting, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. Once the shock had subsided, one of the first questions the victims and other locals asked themselves was why this disaster had befallen them. Since most of those who wrote the FAQs back then were monks, they tended to go for the religious explanation. A case in point is Alquin, who had a clear answer. The locals were to blame. The Viking raid was God's punishment for following Scandinavian hairstyles, dress, and for sleeping around. Apparently, people had even been sleeping with nuns. Modern-day historians tend to look for other factors when explaining Viking activities overseas. They typically point to four different kinds of goals for Viking voyages. 1. Trade. 2. Plunder. 3. Conquest. 4. Colonization. The first was by far the most common, and probably had been for centuries before the attack on Lindisfarne, but many were also combinations of more than one of these goals. But before we get too deep into the questions of why, and more specifically why now, there's a more pressing question to address. That is, who were the Vikings? Archaeological evidence indicates that there existed some sort of pan-Germanic shared culture in Northern Europe at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. The Franks and the Anglo-Saxons belonged to a culture very similar to that of the Scandinavians. Also, their religion was basically the same. This is true at least for the ruling classes that were in contact, traded, socialized and even married their children off to each other in order to create alliances or favorable trade deals. It might have been true for poor people as well, but we have too few indications of what their lives were really like to be able to say anything for sure. When the Franks and Anglo-Saxons converted to Christianity in the 6th and 7th centuries, the cultural connections with Scandinavia were disrupted. The Scandinavians remained true to the old gods. But trade connections remained. Even back then, no matter who your god was, money talked. By the time of the Viking Age, the Scandinavians seemed to have considered themselves a cultural unit set apart from the rest of Europe. They had a common Scandinavian language, religion and culture, and their laws and customs were similar all over Scandinavia. In this context, it should be noted that the Finns and the Sami stood out as an exception. They had a language of their own that had no resemblance whatsoever to the language spoken by the other Scandinavians, and their culture and customs were also different. Anyway, all this linguistic, religious and cultural homogeneity among the Scandinavians didn't translate into internal peace and quiet. They might have recognized that they shared a common language set apart from the rest of the continent, but they fought each other just as much as they fought Christian Europe. If there was a division in Scandinavian society at the time, it was roughly an east-west divide. Based on what scant linguistic evidence we have, we can tell that there was a West Scandinavian dialect spoken in modern-day Norway and the North Atlantic Islands, and an East Scandinavian dialect spoken in modern-day Sweden and Denmark. But the difference shouldn't be exaggerated. All Scandinavians understood each other back then. Archaeologists have unearthed a similar cultural division. Grave goods from excavated graves show us 
in a concrete way how Western Scandinavia was oriented toward the British Isles and the Atlantic coast, whereas Eastern Scandinavia was more connected to Russia and the Baltic coast, the Black Sea, and even the Middle East, at least in terms of trade and material goods. The image of the Vikings that we get from the chroniclers of Europe, people like Alcuin and Ethelward, is one of greedy and violent pagans out to plunder and kill. And even though that's obviously a rather biased depiction, it's probably a pretty accurate one. The Vikings who raided and plundered the British Isles, or the coastal areas of Western Europe, could accurately be described as greedy and violent. But even though this far from flattering picture of the Vikings is correct, we should keep in mind that not all Scandinavians were Vikings. In fact, only a tiny minority were. Viking is not an ethnicity, but rather a profession, or maybe even just a side business or a hobby. The Vikings were people who set out on voyages to trade or plunder, plunder if they could, and trade if the counterpart was too strong to be robbed. To Viking was something you did, not something you were, and certainly not something you were born to be. When we today, in reference to 10th or 11th century Scandinavia, talk of Viking villages or Viking women and children, we use the term in a way that would have been confusing, if not unintelligible, to the Vikings themselves. The vast majority of Scandinavians during the Viking Age weren't Vikings at all. They were too busy being farmers. So, now that we've established who the Vikings were, maybe we should devote a few moments to the word Viking itself. What does it actually mean? Over the years, there have been plenty of guesses, what scholars like to call theories, but no definite answer. Since I don't know either, the best I can do is to relate these guesses. The word Viking could come from the word vik, that is a bay in the Scandinavian languages, in reference to a war tactic where the Vikings would lay in Viking, hiding in a bay in order to spring a surprise attack on an unsuspecting victim. There are even those who say that this is a reference to a specific bay, and according to this theory, the bay in question was Oslo Bay, and the original Vikings came from there. But I have to say, I don't really find that theory compelling, especially if we take into account the fact that Oslo Bay isn't actually called a vik in Scandinavian languages, but rather Oslo Fjord. Another theory is that the word Viking comes from the Old English word wick, for trading post or camp, which in turn stems from the Latin word vicus, meaning village. Another theory connects the word Viking with a verb meaning to leave, because the Vikings left to go plunder. As you hear yourselves, none of these theories is particularly compelling. In the East, Vikings were called Variags, at least from the 10th century onward. This was in reference to those Vikings who served in the personal guard of the Byzantine emperors. The word Variag supposedly comes from the Old Norse Varing, meaning someone who has sworn an oath, supposedly to serve and protect the emperor. So now that we know who the Vikings were, let's go back to the question of why now? What caused these Scandinavian farmers and merchants to decide it was time to start attacking Europe on a large scale towards the end of the 8th century? Unfortunately, I can't offer you a clear answer to this question either. But, once again, historians have a number of theories of various value, but all of them are better than Alcuin's God's Wrath theory. 
So, if it wasn't God's punishment for the sins of the Northumbrian population, adapting Scandinavian hairstyles and sleeping with nuns, then why did the Viking Age start? Both the Norman chronicler Dudo from the 11th century and missionary Adam of Bremen point to overpopulation. The Scandinavians had too many children and so eventually they ran out of arable farmland. They simply had no choice but to send people off to colonize new land abroad. And uh, a growing population at home can be one part of the explanation. Scandinavia has never exactly been the most fertile piece of real estate. In fact, back in those days, it was common that only the eldest son inherited the farm, undivided, in order to ensure that at least one family could live off the land. Younger sons had to find other means of sustenance, and until they did, they usually couldn't marry and start a family at all. But overpopulation is definitely not the whole story. Even though archaeologists can show that there was indeed a steady increase in the Scandinavian population, the late 8th century didn't bring with it such a dramatic population boom as to set off the Viking Age. Also, it took a while until the Vikings actually started to settle overseas. In the beginning, they were content just to rob, kill and burn, and then return home again. So we have to look for alternative or at least complementary explanations. One clue lies in the robbing part of the Viking expeditions. Going overseas on a raid could be an excellent way to make some extra cash quickly. It was basically a kind of get-rich-quick scheme. Going on raids or trade in foreign lands opened up possibilities for enrichment that life in Scandinavia just couldn't offer. Even if you didn't make enough to retire right away, at least you could make enough money to get a start in life. Going on a raid could realistically set you up with enough money to buy a plot of land, get married, and start a family. The crews setting off on these raids consisted of free men, who left their regular lives temporarily to go on raids, looking for adventure and riches. They weren't conscripted or forced, but joined the expeditions voluntarily. The ships were f paid for by local chieftains or large landowners, who also, as a rule, led the raids. The participants weren't paid. Their reward was a part of whatever loot the expedition managed to bring home. Soon enough, these expeditions became popular, and more and more people wanted to go raiding. It helped that the first raiders met very little or no resistance. A primary target used to be churches and monasteries that, just like the monastery at Lindisfarne, were rich in loot and poor in protection. One reason the Viking raids were so successful in Western Europe, especially in the early years, was the weakness and disarray of the European states at the time. Neither the Franks nor the Anglo-Saxons managed to organize any efficient defense against the Viking raids for a long time. And the Vikings were savvy enough to know where to strike, which states were weak and which were well defended. This becomes apparent when looking at the pattern of attacks on Francia, modern-day France, but we'll get back to that in a later episode. With time, Several ships started to gather together in fleets that could be of impressive size. Such a fleet had a greater chance of success and ran a smaller risk of being defeated by defenders. I think it's important to note that not only the violent expeditions were lucrative, Scandinavian traders also made good profits during this time. Turmoil in the Byzantine Empire also served to boost the fortunes of the Scandinavians. With the Arab invasion and conquest of the Middle East, North Africa and later the Iberian Peninsula, ancient trade routes were disrupted. 
This is when the Vikings stepped in. The new situation gave the northern route, via the Black Sea, the Russian rivers and Scandinavia, an opportunity to blossom. We'll talk more about that in a future episode. There was one more factor at play, a really big one, the improvement of Scandinavian ships themselves. The seafaring sailboats were the most important invention of the Vikings. In fact, these ships were a sine qua non for the Viking Age. Without these ships, there would have been no trading expeditions, no raids and no Scandinavian colonization of the North Atlantic. In other words, there would have been no Viking Age. As I mentioned in the last episode, the Roman historian Tacitus noted that the Scandinavians traditionally hadn't used sails on their ships. And that didn't change until the 7th century. Up until then, all Scandinavian boats and ships were driven by oars. These were sufficient for trade in the Baltic Sea and the North Sea, but they had their obvious limits. These vessels couldn't take much cargo and they needed many oarsmen especially if they were to row in shifts to cross large bodies of water in a reasonable time. The Scandinavians were aware of the existence of sails, used by other Europeans for hundreds of years already, but they didn't start to use them themselves until the early 8th century. Once the Scandinavian ships were equipped with sails, though, they were unbeatable. They had an average speed of 6 to 8 knots and a maximum speed of 13 to 17 knots. That's just over 30 kilometers per hour. In no wind, the crew could reach a speed of about 6 knots by rowing. We know this because archaeologists and Viking Age enthusiasts have reconstructed Viking ships based on archaeological finds from Denmark and Norway. With good wind, these ships could make the trip from Denmark to England in three days. Crossing the ocean from Norway to Iceland could be done in only three and a half days. This corroborates statements found in the Icelandic sagas, long believed to have been exaggerations. Navigation was done by knowledge of currents, landmarks, winds and tides. By watching birds you could tell where you were, since these animals venture a set maximum distance from land. The stars and the sun were obviously also helpful. There was a wooden sun compass used to hold the course, but magnetic compasses were unknown to the Vikings. For obvious reasons, these sun compasses were useless on cloudy days. In cloudy conditions or in thick fog, the sailors would get lost at sea. But that wasn't always a bad thing. At the end of the day, that's how they discovered Iceland, Greenland and crossed the Atlantic Ocean to modern-day Canada. But we'll get back to all of that in future episodes. The warships, or longships as they were called, were excellent vessels. Narrow, light, strong, fast, flexible and easy to maneuver. The Vikings could switch directions without turning their ships around, since the bow and stern were basically identical. Furthermore, the ships had relatively flat bottoms, enabling them to sail in shallow waters, like far upstream in rivers not accessible to other ships traditionally used on the continent. Until the 10th century, the same type of ships were used for both raiding and trading, but then the Scandinavians developed a new ship type alongside the longship. This new kind of ship was used for trading and it was called a nar. As opposed to the longship, the nar only had a few pairs of oars, mainly for maneuvering in and out of ports. They were wider and sat deeper in the water. They were also usually shorter than the warships. A nar 
could be manned with as few as 5 to 8 people and could take 25 tons of goods. With time, in the 11th century, the cargo capacity grew to 60 to 70 tons. Even though it wasn't quite as fast as the longship, the NAR was still relatively quick, with an average speed of 3 to 6 knots. The Viking ships, especially the longships, were also status symbols. Scandinavian chieftains were even buried in their ships sometimes. Thanks to this practice, we have some impressive Viking ships that have survived to the present day. If you're interested in seeing some of these ships up close, you should definitely swing by the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo and admire the ships from Oseberg and Gokstad, built a thousand years ago. And the wood is still original. There you'll have an excellent opportunity to admire the impressive craftsmanship of the Vikings. The rigging was often made by durable seal or walrus skin, but unfortunately we know next to nothing about the sails, since they weren't durable enough to survive to our days. For some 300 years, the Vikings were both a constant threat and a vital link in the trade between the Middle East and Europe. Generally in the West, the Vikings were more warriors, pillaging, murdering and that sort of thing. But when traveling to the East, the Vikings were more of shrewd tradesmen and merchants. In the next few episodes, we'll follow the Vikings as they set out to trade and raid. First, we'll turn to the West and look at what the Scandinavians were up to in the British Isles. Make sure to join us then.